It was Rudolf Carnap's dream for the last three decades of his life to show that science proceeds by a formal syntactic method. Today, no one, to my knowledge, holds out any hope for that project, and it has simply embraced the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where the words embrace and void can mean whatever you want. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and with me this week is my guest, Matthew Cull, a philosopher postdoc at the University of Edinburgh with an interest in social philosophy, particularly debates around the concept of conceptual engineering. So Matthew thought it would be interesting to discuss whether my particular activities around luck pilling are a kind of conceptual engineering. So Matt, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Lovely to meet you in person, finally. Yeah, no, thanks for reaching out. I think this is a fun way to for me to have an excuse to talk about luck some more and for you to tell people a little bit about what I think is an interesting sort of broad debate across philosophy and arguably probably across culture even. Before we get into the conceptual engineering, though, do you want to tell folks a little bit about like your background and what got you interested in the subject? Yeah, so I'm one of those awful people who went to university knowing that they were going to do philosophy, loving it. Mm-hmm doing a master's and then doing a PhD in it. So I've got no, you know, story about, you know, my trials and travails. Privilege out there in the open. So yeah, I I, I was trained in the analytic tradition of philosophy, which I I know you've done podcasts on, broadly speaking, before. And yeah, I, I was, you know, being taught all this stuff about logic and epistemology and language and finding it fascinating. But like my interest was always in feminist philosophy and and gender. And that's something that Mm. has started to come up more in uh, sort of analytic philosophy over the past 20 years or so. But uh, so certainly wasn't as mainstream when I was doing my undergrad back at the start of the last decade. So yeah, I, I sort of got into this topic of conceptual engineering through this, you know, sort of background in feminist philosophy where People like Sally Haslang are asking, what should the concept of things like gender be? Mm. And was there a reason that you were particularly attracted to gender as a like subject within that, you know, sort of broader idea? The terrible thing is that I was on the internet throughout my childhood. And mm. being on the internet throughout your childhood, especially of my generation, is places like Tumblr are the places that you go to blog about various different things. And of course, Tumblr in the early 2010s was a hotbed of feminist activism and uh, all sorts of nonsense. (laughs) And so I sometimes joke Uh, that like my broader projects in philosophy are trying to formalize Tumblr's theory of gender. But yeah, so that's kind of the background from it. I I kind of got into these debates about gender through being on the internet. Are you the person when they talk about someone who gets pulled into, you know, trans activism because they, you know, social contagion on Tumblr? That's you're saying that's you is what you're saying. 
social contagion via David Hume is the way I put it. I, there's oh, a long yeah, story well, there. A lot of us, yeah, it's a, it's a very large <laughs> gateway into a lot of uh, inappropriate behaviors, if we're being honest. Very true. I, I mean, I'm there on the weekends playing billiards, drinking too much and being uh -huh. weird about my gender. It's great. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah, and I think that'll be a good one for us to talk about in terms of the applications of this and the politics that can come up around it. But why don't we talk a little bit about just defining our terms ironically here. So what is conceptual engineering and how is it different from basically what some folks think philosophers are doing all the time? Yeah, good. So this is a really difficult question to answer. So thank you for awesome. starting with it. Um, <laughs> it is a so, philosophy podcast. Yeah, exactly right. Um all of the questions are difficult. Um, so one way of thinking about what philosophers are up to is we are looking at the world and we're trying to figure out what's going on there. We're doing a descriptive project. We're saying, okay, so what is this thing we call justice, right? When's it instantiated? When is it not instantiated? Are there any principles we can come up with which capture all of these different phenomena that we like to call justice that's out there in the world, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're doing a descriptive project, essentially. You might say, well, there's also a little bit of a prescriptive project going on here as well, in that we are trying to say, you know, this is the right concept of justice. But that's something that conceptual engineers, which is this kind of broadly speaking new, though that's not entirely true, methodology, want to pick up on, and, on, on and run with. Right? So the thought with conceptual engineering is, what do we want the concept of justice to do for us? What, is, what are the various purposes that we might have in employing a concept of justice? And, you know, how do we create or modify our concept of justice such that it fulfills those purposes best? Okay. And that's basically the, the move that the conceptual engineer makes. Yeah, so... Yeah, right. So we're, we're in this sort of weird situation. So, so first of all, um, I think generally folks, most folks these days will agree there's not like some perfect platonic one true definition of a word that like we have discovered magically out there in the universe. We are sort of constructing our language and the question is sort of what is the goal? This is, I mean, this is sort of essentially a debate about what the goal of defining itself is. Um, so like what are the different stakes do you feel like of the different positions here? Like what are we, what are our options when it comes to defining something? Yeah, good. So one option would be to go back to the ordinary language philosophers of the 1950s and say something along the lines of, and I know some scholar of the 1950s was going to shoot me if I say this, but basically we look at ordinary practice, we see the definitions that are sort of embedded in these practices, and we say, okay, so that that's just what those terms mean, right? Um, if I say to you, you know, I'm uh, I'm standing in front. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of an example here. Uh, if mm -hmm. I say to you that thing over there is a cow, right, and you agree with me, you go, oh yeah, that's definitely a cow over there. The ordinary language philosopher is going to come along and say, oh yeah, well they think cow means things like that thing over there. Mm -hmm. Whereas the conceptual engineer wants to say, look, what are our purposes in defining the term cow? What are the purposes that we might have for using the term cow? So let's say, you know, maybe these people have their ordinary practices and those go on, but we don't need to follow those practices. So this is one thing that uh, a philosopher called Rudolf Carnap takes up, especially uh, early on in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. and, and Carnap's really interested in saying, well, look, we've got all these ordinary concepts in language that ordinary people use, but maybe these aren't the best concepts for science. 
So he's thinking in particular about things like probability and truth, but he's got this great example of fish. So think about the traditional concept of fish that you might have grown up with, where you go, oh, uh, everything in the, that swims and lives in the water in, is included in the concept of fish, right? Mm-hmm. So you might mistakenly think that dolphins are fish or whales are fish. And they are If you were Herman Melville, for example, right? Yes, you exactly. literally right. think that they were fish, yes. Yeah. But the, the scientist is not going to truck with this definition. It's not a very good definition for thinking about uh, unified theories of fish reproduction or everything else that, go, that goes on in the sea. As you can tell, I'm very much not a marine biologist. I'm, I'm a philosopher, right? Whatever the, whatever the marine biologists <laughs> right. are up to, that's not a very good concept for it. So instead, they come up with this different concept uh, to do with being bony headed. And this is the more you know, fruitful definition for science. And so kind of calls this an explication where you go from an ordinary, vague, uh, unwell-defined concept to a nice, precise one for use in science. Okay. So it seems like we have a couple of like inputs going into this system of like trying to figure out, um, you know, we have a word and we have a bunch of different usages of it and a bunch of different theoretical accounts of it that all have various benefits like parsimony versus matching our intuitions, et cetera. How do we weigh which of those things matters the most? How do we decide? That's one of the most important questions that's going on in conceptual engineering right now. And it's a really good question, right? So if we go back to Carnap, you know, in, in, in the 40s and 50s, he says, look, there are four things that a good new concept needs, right? It needs to be similar to the old concept, right? If we've got a concept of fish, which just like doesn't relate to the one we were using before, like we're sort of missing the point of using that concept. So it's got to be similar to the old concept. It's got to be, um, uh, it's got to be exact in particular kinds of ways. If we're a good scientist, we want a nice exact definition. Okay, we also want it to be fruitful, and kind of has a weird definition of fruitfulness. But like you might think of it as like it's good for producing scientific predictions. Something it's illuminating. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you know, if it's if it's a logical concept, it's got to be for, be able to formulate it as a part of a big logical system. If it's like a, a concept like fish, we want to say fish all do x things like that mm-hmm. right and then it's also got to be simple so it's got to be as simple as possible right we don't want a really complex definition if possible now Carnap thinks that's less important than these other ones right mm-hmm. but nonetheless he thinks it's important so he himself even in the early days of conceptual engineering has this ranking of two different types of of, of uh, purpose that we might have in our concepts and you've got to weigh these kinds of things and so in Carnap, we see lots of different kinds of epistemic purposes or purposes to do with the gathering of knowledge and you know being most accurate to the world. And those are the ones which really matter for Carnap. But more recently, conceptual engineers have said, well, why limit ourselves to just epistemic purposes? We could have moral purposes, political purposes, pragmatic purposes. And this is even something that you see in one of Carnap's close allies early on. Otto Neurath says, well, the choice of the language we use is actually a bit like the choice of a constitution or where to build a bridge, right? We're making pragmatic Mm -hmm. decisions based on the needs that we have, the communities that are going to use the bridge or the language and all these sorts of things. So there's a lot of debate which will get tossed back and forth. And on different concepts, you're going to have different things which are more important. That makes sense. To tie it back down to reality, could you give like an example of a concept where you feel like, you know, it's worth... You know, it's, it's, it's defective, but it's not epistemically defective. It's morally or politically defective in some way. And that's the motivation for redefining that concept. 
Yeah, good. So, I mean, one concept that you might think is epistemically defective, but also morally defective, is mm -hmm. something like a biological conception of race. Okay, right? So we've got sure. this biological concept of conception of race, which plays into all sorts of horrible ideologies. Um, and many people have argued that it's just it just doesn't match onto reality in the right way. There's no um, biological basis for the particular racial categorizations we might have. But you might also say, well, look, it's also just morally problematic to think that some people are essentially this way and some people are essentially that way based on their biology. And so some people will try and reform the concept of race or even abolish it entirely and get rid of it because they think it's morally defective in some sort of way. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is something that, you know, was a big debate, you know, not under the label of conceptual engineering in the 90s and 2000s and now has taken on this new life as a debate within conceptual engineering. Right. And this is where I think people could start to see where conflicts are going to arise if people are sort of openly saying, you know, that you gave an example there that wasn't sort of epistemically or that was both epistemically and morally defective. But if you had something where people thought, well, this is epistemically sound, but morally defective, re-engineering that for some people would look like lying or deception or, you know, something problematic in that way. So I was wondering if there was an example where you would defend sort of re-engineering this thing for moral reasons, acknowledging that it wasn't necessarily epistemically defective. Yeah, good. And this is, a, so this is a controversial example, but I, I really like it, mm -hmm. which is think about uh, the conception of gender that a lot of feminists put forward in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And this is a conception of gender, which is one where there's a structural hierarchy in society, where men are on the top, women are on the bottom, and there's a relationship of power between these two. So this is Catherine McKinnon's, you know, in very crude terms, this is Catherine McKinnon's theory of gender. Mm -hmm. Now you might think, well, look, this picks out something very important about the way that society is structured, right? I think it is, you know, a, a, a set of concepts which, you know, pick out actual injustices that go on in society. Nevertheless, I think that it's not the concept that we should be using when we talk about gender. Why? Because I think it, it, it's implicated in all kinds of other injustices, um, some to do with uh, exclusion of trans people, others to do with its lack of accounting for various intersections of womanhood, right? Like the difference between black women and white women, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So I don't think it's the one that we should be using under the label, this is what a woman is, but it's nonetheless epistemically accurate. So a pluralist not is going to say, hold on to it, but don't use it for this particular purpose. I see. And right. So there would be sort of, you know, within the circle of epistemically accurate, you know, uh, there could be multiple epistemically accurate. And this will get to another question I have in a second. You would have, you know, um, some that are that have better moral outcomes or worse moral outcomes. And when you're sort of having to decide between multiple things that are roughly epistemically comparable, you might feel like the moral thing would be the tiebreaker there. Yeah, or we might say, well, look, you know, we can use this old concept of gender if we want to analyze particular things about the structure of society. But if we want to use it to organize uh, a feminist march tomorrow night, let's not use it because it's really exclusionary. You know, so the, the, the sort of thing is to go, what are the purposes that we have for using this concept? And let's use the concept that's best for those purposes. Um, okay. So, so let you me might ask, say, yeah. sorry. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. So you might say these are all gender-ish concepts, but, you know, which one we pick pick to use in a particular circumstance is going to rely on our pragmatic, political, epistemic, whatever needs at that particular time. Okay, interesting. So let me ask you, like, a hard case 
just as a sort of hypothetical, something that came to mind when you were describing this kind of pragmatic definition, could you have a pragmatic definition that you would endorse, even though it was open to pretty significant counterexamples? And the one I have in mind here is, again, a feminist definition of, a, of its time of, a, of pornography, where pornography is defined by its detractors as violent and degrading misogynistic content, which certainly applies to an unfortunately large amount of pornography, but not literally all pornography, obviously. Um, is that a kind of conceptual engineering? And would you sort of defend that as being good or counterproductive? Yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm not sure whether Catherine McKinnon and, and Dworkin, Andrea Dworkin would have conceived of it as conceptual engineering precisely because they thought they were in some sense being descriptively accurate, even though looking back at it, we go, well, that's just too narrow a definition, you know, and perhaps too broad in certain other ways. Um, it's just that mm -hmm. it doesn't match on to our ordinary intuitions about what porn is, right? When I go on, you know, the internet and I look at, you know, what things are in front of me, if I have a Google search in porn, some of it matches McKinnon and Dawkins' definition, but other stuff doesn't. And you might say, well, look, They've just, you know, somehow not got it right in important ways. And maybe that's fine. And there are two routes you can take here. One is to go, well, look, what McKinnon and Dworkin were up to was not to, you know, accurately describe the reality of pornography, but to describe what language we should be using to talk about a particular thing. Right. And say, yeah. well, look, we want to capture this aspect of reality, the violent and degrading stuff, and we're going to call it porn. Right. Mm -hmm. This 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 thought is, you know, we can take two options, one of which is to go, oh, no, you know, we need to broaden out the definition to capture all of the things we ordinarily call porn. The other one is a revisionary move is to go, hey, porn, we should reserve that term just for the violent and degrading stuff. We can have a debate about which of those approaches is right, but that would take the form of like an explicit purpose of discussion about what the concepts we want uh, and what we want them to do for us. I understand. So you brought in there something, and that's something we talked about a little bit before the chat, which was that like there's a debate within the world of conceptual engineering about how important intuitions are and conforming to our intuitions are, which is similar, I think, to the Carnap idea of like similar to old concepts, right? And, you know, in my experience, humans have lots of intuitions. We can talk about the intuitions around luck in a little bit, but like they're often competing, just like the usages are often competing. And so you literally can't, uh, you know, adapt all of them. So to some extent, you're always going to have to be picking and choosing. Um, but I'm curious, like, what is the vibe around conceptual engineers with regard to intuitionism? I'm very pro, you're never going to escape intuitions when you're doing this kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm like, I wonder what the arguments are against that in that world. Yeah, good. So a lot of the time, these kinds of debates get called the implementation problem, right? So conceptual engineers, mm -hmm. they'll think of themselves as doing, roughly speaking, three things. We, we look at existing concepts and we see if any of them are deficient. If there are deficient ones, we then go in and we you know, engineer a new concept or we modify the concept or we abolish it entirely because of its defects. And then we do this third step, which is implementing that concept. We try and spread it around the relevant community, right? If it's a new concept for mathematicians, we go out and we put it in all the journals and say, this is how we should be using the concept. Try to of, make it happen. Yeah, Try to plus. make fetch happen. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, if we want a more broad, like, this is how we're going to define justice across our entire society, that's a really difficult implementation challenge. And so normally these concerns about, okay, so similarity and not matching our intuitions come in as a case of, 
it's going to make our lives a lot more difficult in implementing this concept if we use a concept that's radically different to our old one or doesn't match the majority of our intuitions about how this concept is ordinarily used. Mm-hmm. So this is the question, uh, or at least how conceptual engineers see it as, well, look, how do we get this concept to spread? And it's a pragmatic question, and there's going to be different answers in different contexts. And to be honest, I don't think conceptual engineers are particularly well suited to finding out what's a good way to spread a concept. That's more a job for the social scientists and the sociologists. Um, but the conceptual engineers do the job of figuring out a good concept beforehand with advice from these social scientists and sociologists. Yeah, and that brings up another question, which I think also ties into the concerns some folks would have about this, which is, you know, what is the relationship between conceptual engineering and cultural engineering, which is a term that sort of often gets thrown around as a a negative to sort of, you know, uh, your great reset conspiracy theories of the world or often talk about these kinds of re-engineering and radically changing culture and human behavior and such like that. Um, Are y'all essentially like that? But unironically, I, on, on my on my darker days, I say yes, and uh-huh. I, I go look. I'm trying to manipulate society to make the make a better world. You know, 1984, right. here we come. You know, or, you know, so on and so forth. You know, but full Ozymandias. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, it's gonna it's gonna depend on what you see the conceptual engineer's role as. Is it a sort of advisory role? Is it a sort of political activist role embedded within movements coming up with? concepts that are useful for particular kinds of political movements do they sit in you know the equivalent of the college de france coming up with the appropriate way to use particular kinds of language or do they you know whatever the role is right and so that's going to give you different kinds of answers for me i see the role of conceptual engineer at least as far as i'm doing this kind of project is is with embedded within a particular kind of transfeminist political movement and it is trying to provide concepts that are useful for trans people and feminists in order to overthrow patriarchy. And so hmm. it's it's a question of like, I put these concepts out there and, and whether people take them up, you know, that's that's good or bad, you know, depending on how they find them useful. Now, as I say, in my dark moments, I say to myself, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could sort of manipulate society to mean that everyone uses these concepts? But I have to sort of beat that sort of Leninist aspect of myself down and you know, push, push it back into the corner for that for after the revolution. How? Do, yeah. And I wonder, how does this relate in your mind um, when I talk about luck stuff and free will stuff? A lot of the folks on the other side are often in a like noble lie kind of place where they're like, even if you're right, we're not going to tell anybody because that would go poorly. Um, do you sort of feel like to some extent conceptual engineers are willing to entertain noble lies more than other people? Like, for example, back when we were debating if gay people were allowed to be openly gay, which we did in my lifetime, um, you know, there was a lot of like the pushback was, look, they don't have a choice. They're born that way. It's genetic, whatever. Like, we don't know why, but like there's no choice. And that no choice argument was leveraged to kind of you know, induce sort of compassion and, and like liberal respect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if it then sort of turns out that like, it's actually not genetic, you know, sexuality is somewhat malleable. People, you know, can, can shift in various interesting ways. Like, do you feel like part of the job of conceptual engineers is to like downplay stuff like that, if it might cause political harm? So as, as, as a species can generally no conceptual engineers, don't want to do that. Rather, they want to disambiguate different kinds of concepts and say, we're talking past each other. We need to be more explicit with the concept of, say, justice 
or luck that we're using in conversation and, you know, talk to each other and, and, and see that. That the sounds like analytic really... philosophers. There yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> however, me personally, I'm happy to entertain strategic. Like, you know, I, uh, I always say my, my supervisor, uh, wrote the book on lying. So I'm, you know, more than legitimated in, you know, doing these sorts or of. Or did they? Well, no, she literally did. I mean, like, she wrote a book about lying in analytic philosophy. It's very good. You should go uh-huh. read it. Jenny Saul. Is it pro? Is it pro or anti? Um, it's anti lying, but also kind of like, go ahead and lie. It, it's not as bad Classic as the Nazis at the think. door. Uh-huh. Well, exactly right. I mean, it's more about the semantics of lying more than anything. But yeah, I always say, look, my supervisor wrote the book on lying. It gives me carte blanche to lie and manipulate and do all sorts of things. Go oh, ahead and yeah. lie to, to, to get our political goals done. But that's more to do with me being, being a political realist rather than me as a conceptual engineer. I see. Just further evidence, of course, that like philosophers are the least moral individuals because they talk themselves into being immoral. Oh, it's all uh, post hoc yeah. uh, rational uh, rationalization of our immoral uh, inadequacies. You know, it's all post hoc rationalization. You very clearly got glitter pilled on on Tumblr, and all of the rest of this is just <laughs> yeah, just making it up as you go along. Uh, that's fine. Um, so let me ask you about one other um, issue before we get to the luck stuff, which is this, this idea of essentially contestable concepts. This is something that Toby Buckle over on Political Philosophy often talks about this, you know, for folks who are not familiar, the idea is basically concepts like fairness, some might argue. There is no one best definition of fairness. There's just a bunch of competing definitions and we're arguing over what, you know, we're arguing between them and that sort of thing. Um, in, in situations like that, do you feel like it is still qualifies as conceptual engineering to be arguing for one versus the other? Is everybody doing conceptual engineering when it comes to fairness or is there anything else besides that? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on how the debate actually plays out, right? If people are going into this debate going, hey, we should use this concept of fairness because it has these virtues as a definition and we've got these purposes which demand those virtues, something like that. That would be a kind of explicit conceptual engineering debate. If people are going along and saying, well, you know, this con- this concept of fairness tends to match onto everyday practice or what philosophers generally say, you might say, well, that tends not to be a conceptual engineering way of doing the debate. The lines get blurry here, but it, 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 I'd say it's going to depend how the, how the debate plays out in, in practice. Yeah. And what happens if you try to do all of those things? What happens if you're like, you know, here's my accounting of natural language usage, everyday usage. Here's my accounting of the philosophical debate. Here's my accounting of the psychological side of it and why I think it's beneficial. Is it just come down to like which one of those I say is my real reason and nobody can tell whether I'm lying or not? I mean, if you've got one that works for all of those, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> okay. If, you, if, you've got a, if you've got a definition which works not just with regards to capturing ordinary usage, but also matches onto what we want everything, you know, what we want this concept to do in all ways. I mean, get publishing because, you know, you're going to please trying, everybody. Working on yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so well, I mean, yeah. it would be fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. well, let's, so let's talk about luck then um, because I do feel that way sometimes. Not, you know, it's not perfect because as we talked about, like ordinary usage of terms is inconsistent. And I actually think in the world of luck, there's even more inconsistency because we don't, explicitly define it very well in culture and then people use it for a couple of different things i'm actually you know curious before we dive into this 
you know, just from your own not having studied this way, way, way too much, um, how do you think about or define luck? I, I think of it as a, a, a nonsense. I mean, so for me, I, I think of it as just, you know, superstition. This is metaphysics by another word, you know, okay. run away from the concept, which I know is a completely controversial thing to say, but you know, I, I'm, I'm an analytic philosopher who's you know, raised on human carnap. I, I, I just have to go, nah, just get rid of the concept entirely is my initial response. But admittedly, mm. I'm, I'm no scholar of this field at all. Now, is that because in your experience when people use the word luck, you're, they're thinking about the superstitious version of luck? And so you're responding specifically to that kind of version? Yeah, or they're relying on something fallacious about probability. People don't really understand probability that well, as, as far as I know about right. the studies anyway. Um, so they're sort of saying, oh, you know, I got lucky here. Well, you know, the, the outcomes were there before you already and you know, you could have worked out what was probable and what was not. Even things mm -hmm. which are extremely improbable sometimes happen. It doesn't mean you were lucky. It just means that one of the improbable things happened, um, which is, you know, very deflationary about, you know, what luck is. It's just there's probabilities out there and things happen, things don't happen. And we're, we're projecting onto reality if we call ourselves lucky, um, which is something that really, you know, is revisionary about ordinary usage, saying let's get rid of the concept of luck in ordinary usage. Mm, yeah. And I, I guess I would be skeptical of us getting rid of it. I actually do think it has something of value. So I think, you know, the superstitious luck stuff is problematic. And I, you know, the kind of the luck pilling approach that I take, my, my theory is that it's going to increase belief in non-superstitious luck and decrease belief in superstitious luck. Um, because I think part of what drives belief in superstitious luck is things like, um, you know, agency panic and feeling like you need a sense of control when you don't have it. Um, so, you know, just to kind of process through this a little bit, I'm curious to hear like what the, um, what the conceptual engineering commentary would be on this sort of thing. You know, when I approached um, the concept of luck, it first is from a philosophical argument place. So I first got luck pilled by Nagel's moral luck paper. Like I literally just was convinced by the argument and spent 10 years trying to figure out what the hell that meant and, and sort of felt like I've gotten to a place on it. But it was like, if somebody asks me, you know, why, you know, why do you believe what you believe? The first thing I'm going to say is that argument. Right. And then, right. I went and looked at like everyday usage and I found, you know, a lot of people everywhere across the world use it in superstitious ways. Um, but there's also a widespread definition that is um, uh, the sort of chance account of luck, right? Luck is improbable events, right? You're struck by lightning, that's bad luck or something like that, right? Um, and then, you know, what I find is that there's also at least one other widespread definition, which is lack of control, um, okay? And I feel like, you know, when I go around, if I ask people what they mean, those are the three answers that I get. And it's usually a little bit more of the first two, a little bit less of control, but control generally sort of shows up in the, in the world as well. Does that sort of make sense so far in terms of like yeah, no, absolutely. The, the, the anthropological analysis of this? Um, and this is all cross-cultural, pretty universal stuff. Um, and, you know, so... So I have that kind of information. And then what I have is I feel like a set of philosophical arguments that look at the chance account, you know, versus the control account and show that the control account can 
account for all of the intuitions that defends that are, that are like found in the chance account, like in the situations where, you know, something is unlucky because it's chance. It's also unlucky because it's lack of control in that kind of way. Right. Um, and similarly for like the modal um, fragility account, which is another common philosophical luck account. Um, so it seems to me that like the control account makes sense of all of the philosophical intuitions um, except for the one where we have the strong intuition that some things aren't luck um, and it it takes into account all of the um uh sort of everyday usages including superstitious even though superstitious is sort of an irrational everyday usage it does fit within the control idea um and you know then i feel like on top of that i can add on like and here are the positive implications of of getting everyone to believe the control account and to believe that we all are luck all the way down. Um, yeah. So am I doing conceptual engineering uh, along the way there or what's going on? Do you think? Yeah, good. So it, it's hard to say. I mean, so on the one hand, like we've got all these kind of various virtues of your account, which are, are, are cropping up. Um, but one, one thing that I, I know, which is common to a lot of conceptual engineers sort of discussions of whatever concept is that they've got an explicit purpose in mind, right? So the concept of uh, gender for Sally Haslanger, what does she want it to do? Well, she wants it to provide tools for critiquing extant gender ideology, right? Uh, mm -hmm. What does uh, Carnap want the concept of fish to do? Well, play particular you know, roles in scientific explanation of fish biology, whatever. Right. And so... The question, the question that uh, as a conceptual engineer I'm going to put to you is like, what do you want this concept of luck to do, right? Is it aimed at, you know, capturing lots of intuitions? Is it aimed at um, that and critiquing this uh, superstition-based luck? You know, what, you know, what's the purpose here? And then let that guide the inquiry rather than any, any and the other way around would be the sort of thing which lean, lends me to think it's not conceptual engineering. So I think this is a really interesting kind of borderline case here. You know, depending on mm -hmm. your emphasis, it could be conceptual engineering, it could be not. Right. And 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 I brought up noble lies earlier because when I was thinking about this, it felt to me like the reason I wouldn't immediately call it that if the issue is, you know, um I wouldn't immediately call it that because like if 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 the evidence works out for against me essentially, right? I start doing the research and I'm like, turns out that my my what I believe is the philosophically correct definition is deeply harmful to human beings. Would I jump on the noble lie bandwagon? And I really struggle to think that I would, unless like it was really, really bad. And I don't think it could possibly be that bad. So I, you know, like in that sense, I do feel like I'm lucky, right, that the the policy is matching the the philosophy, but it does feel like it's the, you know, as an educator, I wouldn't want to lie to people. And I feel like part of what I find really repulsive about the way we talk about luck is that I feel like we're constantly gaslighting people about the role of luck in their lives. Um, and I feel like I would not want to be willing to keep doing that, even if, I, you know, you could point to bad consequences or something. Yeah, good. And and so I think that it's going to say, well, it's going to depend on what your purposes are, right? Like, it, mm -hmm. this is, the, again, the thing that the, the conceptual idea keeps, keeps coming back to is like, what do we want this concept of luck to do? Do we want it to accurately pick out all of the examples which are, you know, going on and people call luck in society, right? Or do we want it to be a concept of luck, which is, say, narrower, which excludes, say, superstitious luck, um, but which 
like makes more sense as it were you know or it's like more mm -hmm. internally coherent or it's got other kinds of virtues right it wouldn't be a noble lie to say that's what luck is it's just a different definition of luck which you know doesn't match onto ordinary usage um and and if yeah. you're explicit about the fact that these are two different definitions and you say well look i would prefer to use this one you know other people would use that one there's no there's no lying going on, on it here right there's i suppose right. there's a kind of manipulation you're saying to people we ought to get on board with this one definition which i like and you know, whether that counts as manipulation depends on how you say we should use this concept all, all arguments are manipulation right diderot or something yeah. and all education is indoctrination <laughs> it's fine yeah it's a it's a it's a long line in from plato through diderot to to the present day that we're all trying right. to just manipulate the next generation. Um, yeah, well, so this raises, I think, an interesting issue that I often experience when I'm doing this work, um, you know, which is sort of, I'll, I'll show up for my luck pilling and I'll say, you know, I think this is philosophically correct. I was, you know, motivated by this particular argument. Um, I've come to also believe that it has these positive practical implications, etc. And then there becomes this kind of like, uh, like frustrating back and forth sometimes where I'll say, you know, someone will be like, uh, here's an objection. And I'll say, well, here's the philosophical response to that objection. And then I'll say, okay, but what are the implications? And I'll say, here's the practical implications. And then they'll say, oh, but you're just defending this position because you, you value those practical implications, right? You find, you know, the other uh, implications disgusting. And so, but it's like, well, I was just making the philosophical argument and you pulled me over to the other side, but like, I can go back to the other, you know, like there's sort of a, it's, it's almost impossible to answer both questions at the same time in a way that doesn't make people feel like you are either doing this purely because you, you know, it makes people feel like you're doing this purely because you just like the consequences of people believing this thing. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's difficult because you just want to say, well, look, I've got two arguments here, both point to the same conclusion, one of which you like, one of which you don't like, but you know, like just focus on the one that you like. I, it, it, the falsity of the other, or the, or the fact that you don't like the other argument, doesn't negate the initial argument that I gave. And this, I think, this is just a, a failure on your interlocutor's part. Um, this is this is not your fault. Keep keep oh. up the fight for for your conception of luck. You know. Um, right. There yeah, is something I, to the idea, though, that like going back to our friend Hume, the skeptic, right. If, if our if our reason for picking one definition over another is that we and this is you know a problem with intuitionists as well they struggle with is like if your answer is well i just like this one more you know like that's actually a red flag for some people right you know especially in the modern world things that we like that taste good are often really not um and so you know someone might come along and say well you know if this is really conforming to your intuitions you should actually be more skeptical not less skeptical of this definition yeah, good, and and that's and that's more reason to kind of like focus on this initial, uh, say, philosophical or descriptive or whatever argument that you have, and say, well, look, here's this argument, right? Show me where it's wrong. Burden of proof, uh, burden of proof here is on you to show me where where this is wrong, right? Even though it's you know, a nice fit with my pre-existing beliefs or priors or however you want to spell that out, you know, and I might be motivated to make this argument doesn't negate the fact that I've got this argument here, right? I've got this argument. You've got to provide some kind of countervailing argument against me. And I would say just in defense of sometimes we just like things certain ways, that doesn't stop it being a reason to, you know, organize things in this or that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and this maybe doesn't go for things like luck or uh, socially very 
vital things like uh, justice or race or gender or whatever. But maybe it goes for aesthetic properties or, or aesthetic concepts, right? But certainly, you know, Gothic might be defined in this way according to this theorist and that way according to that theorist. Maybe it's just a good way of splitting the difference. You say, I like this one, so I'm going to carry on using that definition of the Gothic for my particular purposes, right? That's because this is because I was making jokes before the show about objective values and how we all know they are real, and then everyone <laughs> pretends they're not when they're around their philosopher friends. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't want to hear my thoughts on different definitions of gothic. I, I you know, I'm going to offend so many different <laughs> gothic people is when you stand up on your parapets time. and look, uh, you know, hardcore <laughs> yeah. metalocalypse style. I'm pretty sure. So let me ask you. Uh, another question that's that's sort of near and dear to my heart right now as a moral educator who wants to indoctrinate a bunch of people in high schools, if you know we're in a situation where you feel like you have a really knockdown argument for advocating for a particular definition of a concept like luck, right? So I, you know, I make a case that um, just like we shouldn't, you know do a purely comparative approach to moral education in general, right? I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to teach virtue ethics and be like, you know, the um, Spartan virtue model is just as good as like any other virtue model. I think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, we don't want to say that the Nazis are just as good as every other culture. Um, so we we do have some amount of like prescriptivity in our moral education, I think, and unavoidably. Um, and I think part of that has to involve this definition of luck that I have in mind, because I think without it, you get into some bad places about meritocracy and fairness and all sorts of like really important downstream social justice stuff. So if we're okay with telling people, you know, a pro social justice agenda, it seems to me that it would be okay to explicitly argue for this, but you know, I got pushed back from some liberal folks in, you know, in my committees about like, this seems contrary to the very nature of philosophy that we would teach everybody that there's one correct answer to the question of what is luck and model behavior based on that one definition that would seem like potentially indoctrination or something. So how do you sort of assess that kind of question from the cultural, from the engineering perspective? Yeah, good. I, so one thing is, is, is that like a lot of the time for the conceptual engineer, this problem doesn't arise because we're pluralists for the most part. So they say there's lots of different concepts of whatever concept you're interested in. And so there would be lots of different concepts of luck, some of which would be superior to others. And we can rule some out, you know, pretty straightforwardly, like the, the Spartan concept of virtue. So yeah, that's, that's nonsense. But, you know, maybe there's something to Aristotle, Aristotle's version of virtue versus um, G.A. Manskin's version of virtue. Right. right. Like, and we can have a debate. On, 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 and so as a, like a, as a methodology, that doesn't seem to be a problem. Nevertheless, conceptual engineers tend to have pet like concepts that they think this is the right one for this purpose, right? And so if you go into the, 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 the project of, okay, so I, I've got this one concept of truth, which really, you know, that's the one that's right. I've weighed up the virtues of all these different conceptions of truth. This particular one's the right one. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's... It's not a particularly, you know, it, if anything, it's just what philosophers tend to do in general, which is to say, I'm right and you're wrong. And this is my pet definition and you're, and, and you're wrong. Yeah. What, one, one thing which might speak def, d- distinctly to the, the education context is precisely that you might have different purposes in the education context from 
the context of research, right? So in the context of education, you might say, well, look, it's a virtue of a particular kind of definition or concept that it's not the only one that's, you know, available, right? Mm -hmm. That we could have multiples that the students could debate between. Eventually, once they get to, you know, research level, they'll realize that, oh, there was one that was right all along. But for the purpose of education, you might say, it's useful to have lots of different concepts of, say, uh, truth or uh, evolution, right? Like we go, here's the here's Lamarckian evolution, here's Darwinian evolution. Oh, you know, biology students figure out which one's right. And then eventually they realize that something like the Darwinian model is a lot, lot better once they get to university and later. Right. Though we don't actually do that. We just tell them the evolution is the right one. And, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. I actually argued in my in my qual exams that, like, I think we should do the same thing with luck, that I think there's a sense in which some concepts are sufficiently a cornerstone of a whole system that, like, you just can't be pluralistic about it. You can't make room for creative, intelligent design in your biology classrooms. And, like, our, you know, the arguments against keeping intelligent design out of the classrooms was I would argue ad hoc. Like we, we kind of, we kind of fudged that one on the liberal spectrum, you know, and it's interesting to me how liberals are kind of okay with fudging on facts when they, when they think they're facts like evolution, but they're not okay on that, you know, like taking a non-liberal line when it comes to moral education. Um, and I think this is problematic because and I think it plays to part of the reason that we see individuals in social you know in secular liberal societies who aren't in religious backgrounds struggling to talk about ethics effectively is that what you end up with no ethical ethical education at all um but you know like let's talk about conceptual engineering and ethics for a second you have this argument about pluralism versus the sort of i'm right and you're wrong approach and certainly when i was you know coming up as a baby philosopher like it was always the i'm going to teach you a bunch of things and never tell you what i believe and you're going to have to figure it out for yourself and i think there are benefits to that but at the same time there's a good argument i think in virtue ethics that like you need to be habituated to have the right first principles if you're going to act ethically over your life and we can't wait for you to figure it out on your own when you get to college. Like we need to teach you the tr like moral truths and help you, you know, habituate into acting based on them pretty early in your life if it's going to stick. Um, so how do we? How do you think that we should be trying to balance those kind of concerns when it comes to this like trade offs around, you know, conceptual engineering of the good or the right or fairness, et cetera. Yeah, good. I, I think this is going to be a really difficult question, and you're better off asking a philosopher of education about which particular ones we want to say, yeah, we've got to say, absolutely, evolution, you know, it's got to be something like Darwinian evolution rather than Lamarckian evolution. With regards to virtue, well, you know, we can have different conceptions, but there are certain red lines in the sand which just have to be taught, right? It's interesting you bring up uh, cases where it might be impossible to do conceptual engineering because the, the concept in question is so central to our lives in particular ways. And this is uh, one of the kind of uh, debates within conceptual engineering at the moment is not particularly with like things which are pragmatically important to our lives, like uh, you know, what is the you know, best conception of moral right and wrong, right? But mm -hmm. with uh, conceptual engineering of more basic things like logic, right? Can you conceptually engineer the truth predicate? Can you conceptually engineer the consequence relation? Because it seems like any argument that you might have for conceptual engineering those things is going to rely on the very thing that you're trying to engineer. 
So there's this kind of weird circularity when you get to these very basic concepts, which isn't there when you try and engineer things like justice or gender or race, um, mm -hmm. but is there for these really interesting fundamental uh, things like the conjunction, you know, uh, sort of uh, operator in logic. Yeah, and that seems like it would point towards another concern that critics of conceptual engineering might raise, which is once you open this door, is there, you know, is there any way to prevent a slide into relativism? Like once you say we're just going to, you know, have competing definitions and figure out which people, which one people like the most, you know, you were saying that a lot of people are pluralist in that domain, but I think like they're, they're going to get lucky if they can even manage pluralism as opposed to like a pretty rampant relativism potentially. How yeah, do they, yeah. how do you all address that kind of concern? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people just say, well, look, there's lots of potential concepts out there, right? There's a concept which applies to uh, my dog and me as a unity, right? Let's call that uh, Honey Matthew, right? That's a concept that we could use that's out there, right? Honey Matthew, the conjunction of Matthew and Honey. But is it a relevant concept that we want to use? Absolutely not. It's completely, actually, no, that, that's a concept that you might want to use if you know me. I'm constantly around my dog. But like, if, sure. you know, for a similar kinds of concepts, you say, well, look, it's a concept that's out there that picks out a particular part of the world, but it's a useless one. So don't bother with it. Right. So our purposes aren't just, you know, whether you like it or not, but rather like we have particular kinds of needs that we want to do. We want to accurately kind of like figure out what's going on out there in the world and pick out salient parts of it, not just uh, pick out every potential conjunction of different kinds of things. And we've got political purposes. We want to critique ideology or overthrow oppression. And we've got moral purposes. We want, you know, clarity and principles which will guide our lives. Perhaps that's debatable again. But, you know, we, we, we have these things which are kind of like, uh, going to be guiding which concepts we use, even if we say there's, you know, an absolute plurality of concepts, right? So the relativism, mm -hmm. you know, would come up if you say, well, you know, we've got no guiding principles, but as it happens, people do have guiding principles. As a matter of fact, you can then ask the meta-ethical question, okay, so what's going on? What de defines what our guiding principles are? And you, here you right. can have a debate in meta-ethics, right? And I have my views about what that is, um, which are, messy and uh, non-meta ethicists views on this but you know you can have different kinds of views i won't judge kinds of concept, uh, purposes matter yeah so do we then end up in a kind of unavoidable and therefore has to be acceptable circularity of, or like reflective equilibrium if we want to be generous to ourselves about like you know we're defining our values and how we define our values is affecting our definitions and it's all just feeding back into itself in this kind of way yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, for me personally, I th I'm a, a broadly kind of you know, non-cognitivist decisionist. You know, there are just things which I think are right, and everyone else should just agree with me. But there are people who have more thought-out metaethical theories, and they'll say, "Well, look, this is kind of foundational. This is going to be, you know, what's fixed, as it were." In the same way that you might think, "Well, the truth predicate has to be fixed. We can't engineer that, or the consequence relation can't be fixed." Maybe you know, the Kantian categorical comparative maybe that's the one thing that has to stay fixed and it's the fixed point about which all of our purposes um move mm -hmm. I, I i'm less sure about all that business i you know i, I stay at the kind of the not the meta-ethical level but at the ethical political level um but yeah the very various different options that you can take if you're going to go down this kind of line right yeah I, i've been thinking about like moral foundations theory for example where you have these sort of moral foundations that 
are sort of somewhat unpackable. And maybe this is another way to sort of approach the problem of definitions, right? So when people ask me, like, what's an objective moral truth? I'll say, you know, all things being equal, you ought not to cause unnecessary suffering, right? And that's a definition that's full of like five <laughs> testable <laughs> concepts, right? Obviously, but like, um, you know, what I would say at the end of the day is, if you understand all of the words and your intuitions still do not, you know, conform to the concept, there's no further unpacking that can be done conceptually, it seems like, right? You've hit a kind of bedrock of either you're vibing with ethics or, or you're not. Um, is there a, like a, a position like that within the conceptual engineering world? Are there kind of intuitionists out there? I mean, I think that broadly describes my sort of position. As I say, it's sort of brute decision. Cool. It's sort of like intuitions uh, guiding what I think ought to be done. Um, but again, you know, you know, that's just me being a sort of Carnapian type who's wedded to this background picture influenced by Hume about the nature of morality. Again, you know, you have people who have more substantive accounts, which are you know, going to say, no, the nature of our capabilities are such that we ought to have these purposes, and they're going to guide what concepts we use. Or this is the purpose that language, you know, necessarily serves, right? Or mm. it, it has, in fact, served. So here's the kinds of things which we, we need from a particular kind of concept. So you might have a functional kind of approach to this sort of thing as well. Amy yeah. Thomason's got a really cool way of doing things along those lines. Um, but yeah, you can go That's so many different ways here. And it's something I try and avoid because it's really hard. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I think there is like a flourishing, but an ateleological, like a non-essentialist kind of flourishing that humans can participate in that we, you know, all things being equal, we ought to promote and such like that. Um, so we're running a little short on time. Let me ask, are there any sort of big criticisms of conceptual engineering that I haven't hit on here that you feel like you'd want to share in, you know, full candid honesty about your indoctrination plans? So, I mean, one question which you kind of touched on with the issues about intuitions and uh, the Carnap's worries about similarity. So Peter Strawson, way back when, you know, uh, in responding to Carnap has this objection that he calls the topic changing objection, which runs something like this. Look, you've got this old concept of say fish, and then you've just find a new concept and you've called that fish, right? Now, these two concepts pick out different parts of the world. They overlap, certainly, but they definitely pick out two different things, right? So you might say, well, look, the biologists wanted a way to talk about fish biology, right? But you aren't talking about fish biology anymore. You're talking about this new thing. You're talking about fish star biology, right? Right. Um, this so is subtweeting Daniel Dennett, right? This is all just explaining Daniel Dennett's view of free will. I mean, you, you can apply this worry to a, a lot of I'm just being catty. Go ahead. And so, yeah, there's this topic changing objection. And so the conceptual engineer has to say something which says either A, I don't care, or B, uh, I've not changed the topic. Right. And my, my response, I, like I, don't, I love I don't care. That's a great philosopher response. Yeah. It's, 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 it's always my go-to response whenever possible. Sidestep the issue. I don't care. I'll about bite the that issue. bullet. Yeah, fine. No. Yeah, fine. So, <laughs> so, like, so here's, here's one way of thinking about the, the I don't care response, right? Uh, we've got the concept of marriage, as you mentioned earlier, um, prior to its uh, legal redefinition in the early 2010s and so on, mm -hmm. uh, both in the UK and the US, right? Uh, marriage prior to that period, aside from in a few small circles, was between a man and a woman, right? Now, 
we've changed our concept of marriage putatively to being one which uh, allows the same sex marriages and all sorts of other kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the Strawson objection here is to say, well, look, you haven't changed marriage. You've just, or at least you haven't changed what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about a different thing entirely now, right? And my response is, I don't care. This is the social effects that we wanted, right? This is the more inclusive society that we wanted at the end of the day. I don't care that we're not talking about the same old thing as we were before the change in the law. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one way of responding to this objection is to say, look, this is what we should have been talking about all along. This is the kind of thing that we wanted to be talking about, even if it's the different thing to what we were talking about that before. And one would hope that one would back that up with, you know, this thing is better. The other thing had costs, not just, you know, total naked will to power kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, like the cost here being that gay people were excluded from right, uh, particular kinds sure. of tax, you know, benefits or whatever. Right. So that's, that's one response. Like my favorite one, sidestep the issue. I don't care about changing the subject. Change the subject to something better. The other response is to say, no, we've kept on talking about the same thing. But the question is how to do that, even though we've definitely changed the extension of the concept, right? So the extension of the concept is the kind of things that it picks out in the world, right? We've changed the concept, uh, changed the extension of the concept fish when we change this new one to pick out a smaller part of the world, right? We no longer include fish and whales, right? Mm-hmm. And moreover, the intention has changed, has changed as well. Like if you say what the definition of fish was before, it was something swimming along in water, right? Now it's it's got a bony skull or something along those lines, right? The, the, like the definition of the term has changed as well. So in what sense is topic being preserved here? Like, and spelling out like what it means for topic to be preserved, even though both intention and extension of the term fish change through this kind of conceptual change, is something that a, a fair, fair few philosophers are working on at the moment. Uh, people like Herman Capellan will say, well, topics are, you know, these coarse-grained things which, you know, you can move about in a fair bit without, you know, changing the subject. Um, Carnap has this fascinating and interesting line later on in his response to, to Strawson where he says something like, well, look, the old concept was like a, a, a scalpel, but the new concept is like a, a laser cutter, which is really precise, right? So he's sort of mm-hmm. narrowed in on what we really should be talking about. And spelling out what exactly Carnap means by that is a really difficult task and something that a, a fair few people are working on these days, trying to respond to this topic of change, changing objection. Yeah. And so would this be, this be situations where like you might want to potentially appeal to common usage and say, well, look, I'm not changing the subject because this definition is actually what people really mean when they're using this thing in common. They just don't necessarily consciously think of about it that way, but it fits all of the common usages or again, appeal to intuitions and say, you know, I'm not changing the subject because this captures all of the intuitions that matter most on the subject. So for example, in the free will moral luck stuff, a lot of the debate is around the definition of control you know, what kind of control is needed for moral responsibility? And that's where Dan and I part ways. And, you know, I would argue that they're changing the subject because they're sort of ignoring a key part of it, the constitutive luck side of things. And if they're not capturing that, then they're not really addressing what was at stake initially. So so part of this, I think, is, um, st- you know, like explicit stake setting, right? You have to kind of require at the beginning, we're going to say, you know, our definitions of free will have to take into account that, it in practice is about moral responsibility for human beings. That's what they're using it for. So if your thing doesn't account for that, then it's it's not going to be a good definition or something. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and and there's going to be debates there as well. I mean, there may not be in this particular case, but like there are going to sure. be, be debates about, you know, I, I don't care about that kind of thing. Or if I do, I only care about it a little bit. Other things are going to weigh more in my decisions. And you might spell out your debate with Dennett in that way and say, well, look, he just doesn't care about this thing, which you think is important. Wrongly so. He's, you know, he's, he's Dennett. He's, a, he's wrong, of course, you know. But, right, obviously. Yeah, but um, I, I say that I really like his philosophy. Find I think it's great. Um, Everybody but, likes yeah. that. I just he, I, you know, I like him too. He's the most likable person who I disagree with on almost everything. <laughs> but yeah, so you 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 kind of got this disagree. You might have a disagreement even at this level of like what you think is the thing to be weighted in how we evaluate these new concepts or these you know, old concepts, perhaps. One thing that you know might help here is a distinction that Haslinger makes herself between three types of concepts. There are sort of manifest concepts. So when we try and define something, we'll come along and say, ah, so this is the definition. Then there's the operative concept, right? That's the, the concept, the way it's used in ordinary practice. We might not reflectively like pick out the right concept to match onto our practice, right? And then there's the target concept, the one we want to use or ought to be using, right? And that's the target of a conceptual engineering inquiry. Um, so, you know, the manifest and operative concepts might come apart in different kinds of ways, or they might be the same, uh, depending on what sort of you know, concept you're thinking about at a given time. Mm. Okay. So before I torture you, I want to sort of get us back down to the ground because a lot of this was very much... You know, I think we did a good job in attaching it to, you know, real world examples. But are there any kind of final thoughts you'd want to share about, like, the the real world implications for people who are not going to be doing conceptual engineering, but might hear the term thrown around on Fox News or something like that? Like, practically speaking, what is what is your advice for people out there in the world dealing with concepts? Yeah, good. So one one thing that i think is super important and super cool is what goes on in activist groups when they try and create sort of small spaces where they can come together and think about their own social existence and one of the things that goes on is actually they do a lot of conceptual engineering so if you look at uh, people like upias in the uh, in the uk who are a, a union of disabled people back in the 70s 80s 90s basically came up with the social model of disability through organizing together, consciousness raising, came up with this new concept of what disability is, which uh, if you listen to a previous podcast uh, of this of this very one with my one of my supervisors, um, uh, shit, I've forgotten her name. Um, Not Elizabeth Barnes. Elizabeth Barnes. <laughs> really? It's one of your supervisors. Yeah, one of my, one of my PhD supervisors. <laughs> well, let me let me um, just throw in a plug. If you like that Elizabeth Barnes episode, which is one of the most popular ETV episodes, look out for an upcoming Philosophers in Space episode that's going to be exceptionally entertaining, I think. Um, yeah, go but, ahead. But, but yeah, so if you, you know about the, the social model of disability from that Elizabeth Barnes podcast, you, you, you know, this is a really interesting new way to think about what disability is. And it comes from people coming together to discuss their lives and their, their shared oppressions and how they, they navigate those. And so one of the things that I, uh, in my book, which I'm writing at the moment, uh, am arguing for is that trans people already are and should do more of conceptual engineering within these kinds of spaces to develop concepts which are useful to understand oneself and to produce social worlds which are more conducive to liberation and fighting oppression. So conceptual engineering, I think, should be seen as a tool, a tool for activism and you know politicking uh, at this uh -huh. sort of grassroots level. 
Well, the conspiracy theorists are definitely going to clip that last 45 <laughs> seconds. That'll be great. Um, no, Matt, this has been a lot of fun. I think this is really helpful. And uh, I got to torture you now, but then hopefully we can stick around and talk a little bit more about some of this stuff. Uh, but sadly, now it is time for Enlightening Round 2 Trolley Boogaloo Edition. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a series of trolley problems. For folks who are not philosophers, this is going to be a situation where I, you know, or, is, or not on the internet, I guess at this point, um, I'm going to give you situations where you have a lever and you have to make a choice about what you should do. Emphasis on the should here. I know you're an epistemologist, not an ethicist, but do your best. Um, I'm just you know, really I don't glad know you're you not giving do. me the, I'm just really uh -huh. glad you're not giving me the old one where you asked me whether the real or not real. real. Like I, I, those are external questions. The 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 Carnapin is, yeah. is is cowering in fear from that sort of. Yeah, I do miss the real or not real. I think <laughs> it's possible that it will come back again at some point. Um, but yes, for now we're doing a little bit of different kind of torture. Um, so let's see how this goes for you. So uh, first of all, should you save five by killing one? Classic example. Uh, no. Okay. Should you uh, save five by shoving a person onto the tracks who's responsible for putting them there? Yes. Okay. Um, should you save yourself by killing one? No. Okay. Should you save yourself by letting another person die? So you just don't pull the lever. Uh, no. Okay. Um, should you save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? Oof. Oh, God. No. Okay. What if the artist is begging you to kill them and save the art instead? Yes. Okay. Should you... Save the only existing sentient AI by killing one human. Uh, uh, Multi-track drifting. Kill them. Nah. <laughs> Eliminate all consciousness. The antinatalist position. No. Yes or no? Uh, the AI has to go, I'm afraid. Ah. Um, what if it turns out that you are the sentient AI in this scenario? Should oh, run you run me down? Run me okay. down. Okay. <laughs> no matter what. All right. Um, should you save a random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. Should you save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? I would like the judges to note that he is looking directly at the dog while he answers this question. I'm going to have to whisper this one, but I, I'm afraid honey has to go. Uh, she's, uh, wow. wow. She's, uh, we're going to unpack that after. Yeah. We're going to, yeah, we're going to get back to that later. All right. Last one. Uh, should you save an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Yes. Okay. You have survived. How do you feel? I'm morally imbricated in a lot of bad things. Um, Great. Well, I mean, yeah, you're already a conceptual but, engineer, so what, how much worse could it get? Well, I mean, hopefully, I mean, given that I've opted to run myself down in as many situations as possible, this kind of guilt won't last very long. So, 
Yeah, but for all we know, you're like every other philosopher and you're just depressed and want out of all of this. So like it's not really that much of a sacrifice if we're being you're honest not, here. You're not supposed to read your guests as they come on your podcast. <laughs> Goodness oh, you, you didn't understand how this podcast works. I understand. <laughs> I should have clarified at the beginning. Um, no, Matt, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you before we um, wrap up? Yeah. I, so my name is Matthew Cull, if in case you've forgotten. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at M-A-A-T-T-C-U-U-L-L. And also, I don't know, Google Scholar me. That's where I, I write everything these days. So uh I, I plug plug me Matthew J. Cull in quotation marks on, on Google Scholar. Great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put you in the show notes and yeah, like Google Scholar is prolific in its publications these days. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun and folks, you know, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed things and might want to hear a little bit more about how Matt uh, just failed their absolute best friend in the whole wide world, uh, come on over to Patreon, uh, join us and stick around for a little bit of VIP content. But, you know, either way, thanks so much for listening. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Our newest monthly voidlings, Fra Paul, which is a great crossover of two of my favorite pieces of science fiction, and Janet Uter. And thanks to our newest monthly avout, Christian Wager. And as always, I would like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote. A wise in once said, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, uh, with the new co-host, Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals Podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, Consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how you engineer it, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.